1 the words of nehemiah the son of hakalia now it happened in the month of chislev in the 20th year as i was in susa the citadel that hanani one of my brother came with certain men from judah and i asked them concerning the jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning jerusalem and they said to me the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame the wall of jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire as soon as i heard these words i sat down and wept and mourned for days and i continued fasting and praying before the god of heaven and i said o lord god of heaven the great and awesome god who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that i now pray before you day and night for the people of israel your servants confessing the sins of the people of israel which we have sinned against you even i and my father's house have sinned we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant moses remember the word remember the word that you commanded your servant moses saying if you are unfaithful i will scatter you among the peoples but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there i will gather them and bring them to the place that i have chosen to make my name dwell there they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand o lord let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant his grant him mercy in the sight of this man now i was cup bearer to the king uh, we were in the book of ezra um this book where we are right now nehemiah i remember uh, we've said this before as well in the old testament in the in the jewish canon it is one single book the book of ezra and the book of nehemiah Uh, the author of both these books seems to be a single author. However, as you've just read, we can see that Ezra is written by Ezra, though it also has the story of Zerubbabel in it, and Nehemiah is written by Nehemiah, though it also has Ezra and Nehemiah working towards at the end together. Could be that Nehemiah was the one who wrote it down, and then afterwards Ezra copied it, and that's why in the Jewish canon they're both together in one book. Nevertheless, as we look through this book, and as we've been seeing so far in the book of Ezra, we've seen that there's a similar pattern and story that we've seen all throughout. In the first movement, we saw from Ezra chapter one to Ezra chapter six, you had Zerubbabel who led a group of people to rebuild the temple. uh they were saying he was sent out by the king himself and when he went there he faced hardship but he still was able to go and build the temple 
After that, you had Ezra from chapter 7 to chapter 10, taking a new group of people, going back to Jerusalem, and he was trying to teach the law to the people over there who are already over there. And uh, he faced hardship as well. And in the end, you saw that uh, the people repented and they believed God and they came to him again. And now we are in Nehemiah. And so we have Nehemiah from Nehemiah 1 to Nehemiah 7, where Nehemiah takes a group of people. And as we just heard Nisha read, they're going in order to rebuild the walls. And because the city is in ruins, everything around that's supposed to protect the city is all broken down and it's in ruins. And so Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And afterwards, from chapter 8 to 12, four chapters, Ezra and Nehemiah will work together to bring spiritual renewal in the land. In both and all of these places, all of them are going to face hardships from people and they would cry out to God and God hears our prayer. Even as we look at this passage, the main point that we can see in this passage is that we are to go to God and ask for repentance. And so here it's a repentance of unfaithfulness to God. And that's the main prayer that Nehemiah is making. The word Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. The word Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. Now, Nehemiah is the one who's praying. This is a second prayer of repentance in this stretch that we are going through. In Ezra, we saw Ezra pray a prayer of, of repentance, and this is now Nehemiah praying a prayer of repentance. The first point that we can see is that the walls are broken and destroyed. The gates are destroyed, and so broken and destroyed walls. We can see that from verses 1 to 3. This book, it says over there, is written in the month of Chislev, which is the end of November and the start of December. So between November and December. It's in the 20th year, meaning the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. So we see that in Ezra chapter 2, verses 1. That's around the same time this story is happening. When Ezra chapter 2, verse 1 is also being written, this is around the same time. Where is Ezra in this time? Ezra is in this place called Susa. If you read the book of Esther, you hear the place called Susa. Susa, Susa is nothing but a holiday home or a winter home where the kings of Persia went to rest and to relax. It was one of the most uh, best places that they had in the ancient empire. And Nehemiah, as we see right at the end of it, we see that he was a cupbearer for the king. And so he lived with the king and went in where the king went and he traveled with the king. In other words, he got the best of all the royal goodness that the king could have. He was, don't forget, still a slave because all the Israelites were slaves, right, with them. But yet he got the best because he was always with the king. And so we need to remember this backdrop as we are looking into this passage. Nehemiah is seated in the most comfortable place where the king is. And he is amongst the biggest empire then in the world. Or imagine right now, um, maybe the, one of the biggest empires is America, but imagine empires at uh, America at its highest, 
when no other country could compare with it. And this is way greater than that because um, uh, America is not ruling multiple countries right now. But here you had the Persian Empire rule almost all the way from India to um, some parts of modern day Europe. All of that stretch was what Asia uh, or was what uh, the Persian Empire was ruling. And so he is living under that huge influence of wealth and comfort away from his home. And what is Nehemiah thinking of? What is he thinking of? He's thinking of his people, his home, and how they might be doing. It's been 142 years from the time Nebuchadnezzar invaded the city and destroyed the walls, destroyed the gate, burnt and destroyed the whole city and captured them and took them back. And so Nehemiah is hoping that in all these years, he's not 142 years old, by the way, he's a different generation over there. So he's hoping after all these generations that have gone by, that these people who've left back or who escaped when Nebuchadnezzar attacked, remember when Nebuchadnezzar attacked, he left all the weak and the people he thought were useless. And there were some who escaped. All of them might have come back and maybe at least their children's children now would have made the country look beautiful. But you have this person who is, uh, historians say that he is Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, who's coming back with a report saying that everything is still destroyed. Nothing has been restored for 142 years. It's all still in ruins. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart. Now, if you go back to Ezra, how did Ezra react when he first got the news of the country of Israel and his people and of the, broken, of the sins of the people? How did he react? With brokenness and grief. If you read the book of the prophets in all the minor and the major prophets throughout the Old Testament, or even in the New Testament, you can see that when prophets come before God, they are broken at the sins of the people, broken before because of the condition of what people are going through. And so here you have Nehemiah, whose heart is set on Israel. He's living in the wealth of Artaxerxes, and yet his heart is set somewhere else. He's living in the most powerful kingdom, but yet his heart is set for his people. <clears throat> now I'm sure if I ask many of us here, where is your heart set? All of us will say our heart is set. I'm sure none of us are going to say our heart is set for Israel. If some of you say, then maybe your disposition is wrong. Today we do not look for a fulfillment in an earthly kingdom, but an eternal kingdom that's going to come. So if I ask every Christian, where is your heart set? The default answer is going to be, well, it's with God and in eternity with Him. But that should come down to our practical living and ask, do I live that out practically? When you look at my life, the way I've lived it, the way I've made my decisions every single day, does it look like that my heart is set for eternity? Where's the trajectory going right now? You can say your trajectory is going there, but your trajectory could be going the opposite direction. So that's a good question to ask ourselves. Where is our heart set? And when you look at Nehemiah, 
And as you read this, and as we will see in the chapters to come, we will without a doubt be sure where his heart is set. If you look at the book of Ezra, without a doubt, you can say Ezra lives for one purpose alone. This week, uh, in uh, on our Wednesday Bible study, we studied Paul just before he's almost towards the end of his journey. And he puts it so beautifully. He says, I am okay. Even the prophet Agabus actually tells him not to go. If you go, you're going to be put to death. They will kill you. Do not go. And all the church moans with him and tells, do not go. And Paul says, I don't mind going, even if it means I die. It is for the gospel and for Christ alone I live. Now see, these, all these things sound really good in biblical stories. They also look very good in church history. But the moment it comes to application for us, very few actually look the same, right? Why should it be different in another generation and different in this generation? With all the knowledge that we have, with all the comforts that we have, uh, we, don't, we do not have to walk to church for a whole day and then reach church in the morning and then afterwards walk back home, right? We live in comfort. We can sit in our cars, in, our, in the train or whatever modes of transportation that God has given us through the ingenuity of man. And yet we can come here. Those are comforts we have. But yet for some reason, the comforts tend to draw people away from God. And so a good, important question I want to ask you to ask your own heart. Where is the trajectory of my heart? Where is it set? For the eternal kingdom or for the kingdom here on earth? And I want you to answer that question yourself. Don't answer like I said first, well, it's all for eternity. If you're doing that, then look at your way you're living your life and ask yourself again. Does that look that way when I look at my life? Practically, the way I'm living it out. Does it look that way? You know, James says that a fool would come into a mirror and look at his face and go back without making any changes to it. Oftentimes, many of us come to the Word of God and the Word of God convicts us and shows us of sin, but we would just deny that sin and walk away. I can go to the mirror and I can see patches on my face and I can say, well, that patch does not exist. And I can go back. Who am I fooling myself? So uh, what we need to do, if a, a patch on my face, which I have actually, is okay. I can get through life here. But a patch in our trajectory for eternity is not okay. It will get us on the wrong direction. And therefore, we must ask ourselves these questions and must uh, take our hearts to God and ask questions about these. And all this brings us to the second point, the main thing where we'll see all the way from verses 4 to verses 11. By the way, the first point was from verses 1 to verses 3. And the second point is from verses 4 to verses 11. Now, we can see that just like Ezra, Nehemiah too, is broken. His heart is broken for his country. The response that Nehemiah is giving is so common to all of the prophets. 
In verse 4, it tells us that he sat and wept, not for a moment, he sat and wept for days. Now, days is anything more than one. I don't know how many of you all have wept for one day. It is something that makes you feel, feel really low and something makes you feel depressing and something that's even bodily tiring, right? Imagine weeping for two days at least. I'm sure you wept for more than that. We don't know how long, but it says days. But going on in weeping and mourning before God. And the beauty of his weeping and his mourning and his sadness is that he did not run away from God through it. He went to God with it. And this is something that is important for us that we can see from Nehemiah. How do we respond to deep hurts and pains? How do we respond when we are stuck in the corner where no place, where we are in this place of no return? How do we respond when we are feeling tired in our body? How do we respond when sickness gets the best of you? How do you respond when you are struggling with sin never ends? How do you respond when you feel like everything is broken? Why is Nehemiah in this situation? Remember, there's a difference here. We might be in that situation because of something we have done or something that's happening to us. Remember again, Nehemiah is living in comfort. But he is making himself uncomfortable for his people. A different situation than where we are. But nevertheless, yet he goes to God in his discomfort. A good question to ask us is in the desperation of our hardships, pain and trials and struggles, where do we go to? Do we go to God in prayer or do we run away from him? Or do we with our works try to solve whatever situation or mess or sin or hardship that you are in? We must remember that none of this is what we can sort out. None of it is what we can help ourselves. No self-help book or no me time, which the world says that you need, will also help you. No isolation from anything else is going to help you. God and God alone is the answer. And so Nehemiah went to him and him alone. Oftentimes, the desperations and pains and afflictions can take you away from God, but God has designed it in such a way, so beautifully, that when hardships and trials come in your life, God has sent it for a purpose, to either draw you to Him at His knees and become closer to Him, because that's the only way we hard-hearted men can be humble. When I say men, I'm talking about all of us here. But it can work the other way around. If you want to stick to your hard-heartedness, it can take you away from God. And that is why oftentimes, again, this is connected to what I said first. If your trajectory is away from God, the first thing you will do in times of despair is tune out God. Or tune out anything you'd have to do with God. The first thing you'll go to is whatever you think is comfort in life. Whatever you think is the best thing for you at that situation. And so you will cut out God, his people, or anything that has to do with him. 
We remember the parable of the sower, right? We see it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 5 to 7, then verses 21 to 22. I want to especially want to focus on this because it connects to what we're seeing here. Some of these seeds that the sower sow fell on shallow ground, but the sun came and the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Verse 7. Others fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants, but they have no root. They lasted only a short time. And then here's the interpretation that Jesus gives later from verses 21 to 22. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Trouble, persecution. Verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns referred to someone who hears the word, but the worries of the life and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and make it unfruitfulness. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the want to get rich, the worries and hardships of this world, the struggles of sin, the brokenness of the body, everything that you think that you're going through, which is real, all of it can either make you draw closer to God or choke the word out of you. Jesus is speaking to the Jews. Jesus is speaking to us from the word to us right now seated here as well. I want to ask us ourselves again, where do we go to? Do we go to God in prayer or do we run to a place of comfort? It's so beautiful that Nehemiah, who is in a place of comfort, puts himself in a place of being uncomforted all because of hearing the people. Do you know any other man who did that? Nehemiah is nothing, as you can keep seeing, as we saw Ezra, Nehemiah also is nothing but a foreshadowing of who Christ is. Perfect God in perfect holiness took the form of sinful fallen man to die for us. And we can see that being unfolded as we go ahead. And I want to ask us then to ask, what is that situation in your life that is uncomforting you? What is that causes you to worry? What is that find that where you find a place where there is no satisfaction or where you're stuck in that one corner? What is that thing in your life or what is that place? Is it sickness? Is it hardship at work? Is it hardship of parenthood? Is it your studies? Is it the worry of life? Is it the worries of the riches of the world? Is it something that oppresses you? What is it that draws this satisfaction away. Brothers and sisters, if all these things make our life hard and we are running to anything else, your work, your relationships, your families, your, your own sicknesses, your parents, all these things, if you're running away from all of this, because of these things, away from God to the comforts of the world, then you are not going to find satisfaction. The only way you can get satisfaction is from God and God alone. Harsh work is hard and that is because of sin. Parenting is hard and because that is because mothers and fathers, you are parenting fallen sinful men and women who need 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of these hardships, while living in a sinful world, if you isolate yourself from the beauties of God's word, thinking that you might receive rest, which you definitely need, but if, if that rest draws you away from God, then you would stay away from him and it's not going to in any way actually fulfill the need that you really need. The real that you really need is something which is far more in, in inside than what is outside. Paul knew it, that's why he said the outer body wears away while the inward self grows. I pray that we would get to know that as well. The gospel teaches his goodness. Nehemiah saw something beauty, beautiful about his people and about what God has promised to his people and about what God has said in his word. And so he hold it, held it even more closer to all the riches of the prince of Persia and all the riches of the Persian empire that he could ever see. I'm sure Nehemiah touched more gold than any of us who had. But yet he treasured something that was far more beautiful than gold, the word of God himself. Now I want to go down and let's see Nehemiah's prayer and how he prayed and we can apply that. But just before we go that, I think some of us, uh, which I need to address is, we get into Nehemiah's prayer, I want to answer a few questions that we might have about this whole prayer. Because first thing, Nehemiah has this great zeal and love for a nation, right? And Ezra also has. Some of you can ask, should we have this kind of love and zeal for our nation? Some of them don't have it for their own nations, they have it for the nation of Israel even now. So those are some questions that we should ask. And the next thing is, Nehemiah in his prayer is asking forgiveness for the sins he's not committed. He's asking forgiveness from God for the sins of his people, the nation, and his fathers. And then I think we should ask, should we do that today as well? Now God has sovereignly put us here as Indians, many of us, most of us. And the reason God has put us here is for a purpose, to be part of his kingdom. Wherever you are from, God has put you for a purpose. It's not by chance. And what does the Bible teach us? That we obey our government, we submit to them, give to Caesar what Caesar deserves, right? And so we obey, we submit, we also love our nation. And maybe some of us might even go for war for the nation and give our lives as well, which is all fine. But our nation is not the nation of biblical Israel. The nation here of biblical Israel is not the Israel today. The nation Israel here is God's chosen people whom he chose and whom he saved, which resembles nothing but the church today. The Israel today is the church. We see that in Romans 9, 6. Uh, and, and, and not all of Israel is Israel. Romans 9, 6 talks about it. It is not that God's word has failed, for not all who have descended of Israel are Israel. That means not all who were in Israel were actually saved. Well, you might be thinking, who are those fellows? God saved Jacob. Did he save Esau? What, of, what about Nadab and Abihu? 
What about Solomon? You can keep thinking and asking about those whom God punished because of their sins and because they hated God who were from the nation of Israel. They were Israelites who were circumcised. And so here what God is talking about when Nehemiah is crying and weeping for is a spiritual people, not a physical land or a physical people. And so therefore, if you want, uh, this is a big thing happening in the West today, especially where there's this whole Christian nationalism. It's not here, but it's going to get here. And most of our young men might know about it who are on Twitter land and Facebook land because everything comes from there. Uh, so it's good to address it. And eventually it will come here as well, Christian Indianism. And so what do we do then? We should love our nation because God's given it to us and we have to pray for the redemption. Yes, you pray for its redemption. You love it but not in the same way you love the church. Not the same way Nehemiah did for Israel. The Israel then is not the Israel now. The Israel now is the church. And so I think we should remember these two distinctions. The next thing is the second question I asked. Should we pray for the sins of our nations? So many Americans would pray for the sins of their nations. For example, racism. And so you can ask yourselves, well, in the church, casteism was something that, uh, I don't know if you all know the very famous story of Gandhi who went to the church and saw casteism in the church, and therefore he never returned to church again. So should we as Christians pray and ask God for forgiveness because of casteism that has lasted for decades and even now lasts in the south of India and in places in the north of India? Should we ask forgiveness from God for that? Well, not really. Here's the reason, because when Moses prays on behalf of the people, when Ezra prays on behalf of the people, when Nehemiah prays on behalf of the people to God and asks forgiveness, he is foresh they are foreshadowing whom? Christ. They are foreshadowing Christ who stands right now on the right hand of the Father interceding in our behalf. They were in the office of the prophet back then, interceding for his people. Christ fulfilled that office, standing right now in the office of the prophet, priest, and king, and apostle, interceding for his people. And therefore, in short, we should not do that. We should repent about our own sins, and if our own fathers or someone has done something, we, we sh it's okay to repent about it. But about unknowing and unconnected sins, we are not to repent of. Now I want to keep all that in mind, that's for the intellectual heads who wanted to know it, and for it, it, since we are in that text, it's good for us to know as well, because we might at some point come across this. Now I want to come back to Nehemiah's prayer, and what he prays. The first thing we must understand is this is a prayer of repentance. After Ezra, here you have Nehemiah. If you are someone, uh, when we, we have some people who pray in church, right? And I'm sure some of you might be wondering, well, I wish I could pray like them. How do you pray like them? How do you pray like anyone? Pray because you pray the word. And you see Nehemiah, what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah is not inventing new words. He's praying stuff that people have already prayed before him. As you go through the Bible, people are praying all who God is and what he's done and what they have done wrong and what they must do. That's what they're praying about. 
Prayer is nothing but talking to God, letting him know about your hardships and your troubles so that he may intervene and change your heart and mold your will to the will of God. And so oftentimes we might go to God with wrong understandings of prayer, but I hope this helps us to understand what prayer means. So Nehemiah is praying here, and some of us might be in these hardships and trials that we, which I mentioned before. What do we do? What we must do is to go to God in prayer during that time. Romans 12, 12 reminds us, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulations, and then what? Be constant in prayer. When are we to pray? Then constantly, even through tribulations, even through hardships, even through trials, even when you're broken, go to God in prayer. You, by running to your comfort zone, having me space, is not going to fix the problem. Going to God in prayer alone can help you. And so Nehemiah starts his prayer by one thing, by giving glory and praise to God. That's how he starts it. He says, O Lord God of heavens, the great and awesome God, God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. What is Nehemiah talking about? He's talking about who God is and the attributes of God that he understands and that he can relate to while amongst that hardship. When you are broken, when you have no love, what, do you, what attribute of the love of God that you would see? The love of God and his steadfastness in love. When you have broken a covenant with God, you see God as a covenant-keeping God. When you need help and you are in despair, know that help can come from nowhere else, and then you look to God of who? The God of heavens, who is great and awesome. And so when Nehemiah starts his prayer, it's very similar to what Jesus teaches us, right? In the New Testament. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus was not inventing some new form of prayer. It was how men were to always pray. In Psalms 51, when Moses is confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba, where he basically violated this woman and also killed the man she was married to, the first line that come out of his mouth in prayer is about greatness to God and to praise to him. In Psalms 51, 1a, this is what he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. He knew about God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. He needed mercy because he wasn't merciful. He was exactly the opposite of being merciful. He was being lustful and wicked and sinful. His love was not steadfast, it was nothing like the love of God. And so he remembered God's steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, when we are broken, when we are in the times of hardship, do you remember God's goodness and his attributes? Can you relate them to your weaknesses and to your sufferings and to your brokenness? I gave us at least three or four examples here from the scriptures. The next thing he does is that he goes to God in confession and see how he confesses his sins. He says, Israel, your servant, and then afterwards he says, uh, we have sinned against you, clearly. 
My fathers have sinned against you. Not only does he acknowledge his own sin before God, but he acknowledges the sin of the people. And then not only does he do that, not only is he so vague that we have sinned, he also says how he has sinned. How are they sinned? We have acted corruptly against you and not kept your commandments and statutes and rules and commandments. If we fail to acknowledge our sin before God in our prayers, we will never confess our sin before man. If we fail to even tell God what our sins are, we will never be able to tell people what our sins are. I want to ask us, how many of us, when you go to God in prayer, in repentance, when you do a prayer of repentance, when you sin, tell God what your sin is and how you sinned? Nehemiah did it when it was not his own sin. It was sins of someone else. But he made it his own, just like Christ did with us as well on the cross. And many might wonder, wait a minute, God knows all my sins. Why should I go to him and now you're just giving me this extra burden? I don't want to take all this. I can just go tell God, I'm sorry, forgive me. He'll forgive me. He's merciful. He's loving. Well, live it out practically in your normal life, right? Husbands and wives. Don't tell your wives that you love her. Don't tell her you care for her. Wives, don't tell your husbands you love her, you care for her. Don't do anything kind. They already know you love each other, right? Why do you need to show your love? Why do you need to use words to show your love? Don't tell each other you love one another. Don't buy good things for one another. Don't help one another. Just let it be because you already know that you love one another. Oh no, here it, it cannot work. With God it can work, but with our relationships here on earth, it cannot work. Or even more better, maybe some of us, especially as Indians, we're more closer with our kids. So what about your kids? How many of you show our love to our kids? We kiss them, we hold them close, we tell them we love them. Yeah? I'm not saying these are bad things, don't get me wrong. I'm saying just like we do it here, we need to do it with the maker of our universe. Why do we fail to do it with him who has created us, but it's okay here to do it? It actually should flow from there to here. When it does that way, then you'd be able to do it rightfully. When love flows from God to man, into man's relationships, that's the most best way love can be portrayed. If you're learning love and the understanding of love in the world, you've already gotten it wrong. And that's why, for example, the product of feminism, most women today don't know how to uh, uh, receive love from men and don't know how to give it back. Product of feminism. Product of, product of male chauvinism, don't know how to express love to women. Oh, well, I'm not a man who expresses feelings. What happens when your favorite team loses the cricket match? Oh, well, then suddenly you have feelings then. So we all have this different kind of, we are to God, tell God everything in prayer, and he listens to us. He's faithful to listen to us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, this is what he says. Paul is reminding the church in Philippi. He says, do not be anxious about some things, anything, but in everything. See, he's using absolute terms, anything, everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
So with your prayer and supplication does not come grumbling, but thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Something to ponder, how oftenly when you are in the midst of struggles, do you go to God in prayer? Nehemiah here is going to God in prayer in the midst of the struggles and hardships of his nations. Again, keep remembering this man is going for someone else's hardships. There are some of us at times who do feel broken because of the hardships that someone close to you might be going through. And you feel the burden of their pain. And that's a good thing. Take that to God. Don't continue to bear it. Keep taking it to God. But how many of us all go to God ourselves in prayer? Some of you might be thinking, that means now I need to learn how to pray. That's such a big hard task. Well, I'm not telling you a methodology that you have to follow. I'm basically asking us to question our hearts to see where it is aligned and where it should be aligned. Because if we do not ask enough questions to our hearts, then our hearts is deceitful, like the Word of God says. It's going to lead us astray. We go to the Baji market and ask as many questions we want to ask about a fruit that we want to buy before we buy it. But when we come to God about our hearts, we don't want to talk about a lot of things. We should use that same logic everywhere, that same reasoning everywhere. We should ask our heart, why, O soul, are you doing this? Rather than listening to what our heart tells us. And so therefore, God tells us and he invites us. If you are seated here and you're a Christian, the beauty of you being a Christian is you can go to the maker of the universe. That's why Nehemiah, though he was living with the king, did not go to the king first. He did not go to Artaxerxes first. Hey, well, mere paas ek hai Artaxerxes. Main usko number lagata That's not what he did. He dialed the right person, and that is God, knowing that he would answer. Only he can save them. Even though this other man whom he served every day ruled the almost entire known world that time, yet he knew that only one God can save them, that is the God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, when we are stuck with hardships at work, and as parents, or with your sin, or with some other torment that you're going through, do you look at the Lord of the universe? Or do we look at the Lords here in this world? Where do we go to? James reminds us that we should go to God in prayer. James 4 was 2 to 3. James chapter 4 was 2 to 3. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you quarrel. Now here, this is what I want us to know. Here, You do not have, why? Because you do not ask. You do ask and you do not receive it. Why? Because you ask wrongly, with wrong motives, to spend it on your own passions. And now I, James might be talking about wealth or anything here on earth, but still... Do you ask God for help or do you ask him wrongly? How could it be that you could be asking him wrongly? Well, if it's a prayer that you're just saying, you don't understand. Some of us, you know, so uh, this thing that when we go to God, we suddenly our whole language changes. Normally when you talk to people, it's different. But when we go to God, we use a different language. Now, 
I'm not against using a different language. We're going through before the God of the universe. So in some way, it's good if it's a different language. I'm talking about those who don't understand the word they're using. But they still use these big words and go to God. And so they don't know what they're praying, but they're just saying it. Or sometimes we just parrot the same thing again and again and again and again before God, thinking that the act of prayer will save us. It is not the act. It is the brokenness of heart that God wants before him, in which he will work and save our heart. And so if you are just parroting things, don't do that. If you are just going to God with big words, go to him in small words if that's the most convenient for you. Go to him with whatever needs you have, words you have, and let him know of the struggles that you're going through, of the hardship that you're going through. If you're facing hardship at work, and then go tell God, Lord, my body feels broken by the end of the week. Would you strengthen me that on the Lord's day, I wake up and go to church? That I not feel that I can just put myself to sleep today and skip church? Or in parenthood, if you feel like, Lord, my body feels broken. And ask God for strength and he will give you strength. The moment you think comfort can be found somewhere else, the moment you, you, the moment you thought that, well, if I sleep today, I will get comfort, you've forgotten, you're, you're, you're thinking comfort is, you're finding comfort somewhere else. You definitely need comfort. Where you need comfort is tell your boss on Monday, I'm not coming to work. Do that, that's where you need to find comfort. Not on the Lord's day when he's told you that you need to worship amongst his saints. And you say, I don't want this spiritual food, it's okay, I will go on some other day and eat of that spiritual food. This is what we're saying with our actions, not with our words. That's why I said right in the start, if I ask you, all of us seated here will say that my heart is aligned right. But is your action aligned the same way? Sadly, no. But yet, here's the beauty of this whole story. Why did Nehemiah say that you are a steadfast God? Because Nehemiah knew that God is steadfast. It was not Nehemiah, it was not Zerubbabel, it was not Ezra who first went and sought the Lord and they were lost. It was the Lord who sought them. That's why he is steadfast. The Lord seeks us while we are sinful and broken when we do not really need that love. We do not need, brother and sister, you and I don't need the steadfast love of our merciful God. But yet he seeks us and in his mercy and in his grace has given us steadfast love. And yet he tells you, son, daughter, come to me. Ask of me, repent before me, and I'll give you, I'll redeem you, I will save you. And the world tells us another, but we should listen to the words of God. If you are here and you feel like my whole life has been broken, I've been trying to do things and fix things, I've been praying all the right prayers, going to the right churches, going, doing different things, and yet things are not working out. Brother and sister, maybe you are not just coming to God in prayer and asking Him for help. 
It's not a church that will save you. It's not a man who will pray will save you. It is not anything else or how you pray will save you, but only God and God alone can save you. If you do not repent before him, if you do not use words and repent before him, then on the last day, when you stand before him, in judgment he will reject you. His wrath will be poured upon you and you'll be destroyed with all mankind. But here's the beauty that Christ came and died for his people. And by his shedding of his blood, by the breaking of his body, for people who did not deserve his love, but yet he was steadfast. Steadfast to what point? To the point of death. That's why men throughout church history are able to be steadfast in their ministry. You, you look at a man or a person who loves the Lord till the time their body is dying. You know why? They've tasted of something. You know what that something is? Is the work of the gospel upon the heart of a man. If the gospel has actually worked upon your heart, it must change you to a different trajectory. If your trajectory is never going away towards God. Now, I, I'm not talking there are times when people would fall. There are times of segments of long times when people will go through struggling. So I'm not talking about perfect trajectory. But nevertheless, there would be some trajectory towards God. If that never is there, and then there could be something wrong in your alignment with God. What do you do then? What do we do? Break those away. Go to only one which can actually save you. If we do not do that, then we'll continue to go the way we are going. And so in the end, uh, he goes back after repenting and talking about God's steadfast love. He goes back to acknowledging who God is. And he says, Lord, you alone can save us. And you alone will save us. And he knows that God will save them. And we'll see further how God does save them. As we go back this week, I want us to remember every day as we pray, let us not run away from God, especially during the time of hardship. When your body is all broken, go to God in prayer. When, when as a parent you're tired, Maybe you're a man, you come home tired and then you have to be with your children at home and you have no more strength. Ask God for strength. Maybe as a mother you are tired at the end of the day. Ask God for strength. And look towards the perfect Israel that's going to come, the eternal Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem that we all look to where we are citizens of, where our hearts are. And let us be encouraged knowing that our citizen there will never be lost and it will be perfect. Lord, forgive us that we often have not come to you. We've gone to comforts, which you have given us as comforts to enjoy in this world. But sometimes, Lord, we have made those as our utmost times of comforts and we've forgotten to come and find comfort in you and you alone. O oh Lord, help us to hear, learn from Nehemiah, who foreshadows Christ himself, who is in the place of comfort, 
but yet came for us sinners and died for us. He, though was in a holy and righteous place, took the form of sinful man. And so, Lord, help us to know that in you all our answers and rest can be found in you alone. Not the way that the world defines rest. Maybe it's not us sitting in a beach and sipping juice, doing nothing. That's how the world defines rest. But Lord, help us to find rest like what your word says in Psalms 23. In the times of hardships, in, in, in the times of the valley of the sorrow, the shadow of death, where we will fear no evil. Oh Lord, that peace of having no fear when fear looms around us, having no fear when death looms around us, having comfort and hope and peace when the world is in chaos, when our worlds are in chaos around us, can come from you and you alone. No amount of peace or no amount of me time or no amount of sleep or no amount of anything else, even medications cannot help us in all of these things, but you and you alone. And so, Lord, forgive us if we've been neglecting you. Forgive us if we've been neglecting your people and going elsewhere. Help us, O Lord, to come to you, for you are God who can alone save us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Let us come to you like in the words of the apostles where they said, Lord, you alone can give us eternal life. What can we do without you, O God? And so you who give us eternal life, why will not you give life to our dying bodies when they need life? And so, Lord, when we are weak, when we are broken, we come to you. Teach us, O Lord, through the Holy Spirit to come to you, to, to find strength and hope in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.